just a producer's note up front we did have some technical issues when recording this episode with a guest in person the long and short of it is is we recorded on two separate devices in the same room so we were picking up each other's audio but the devices were different so they became gradually desynced as time went along so unfortunately All I could really do was choose which one of the two recordings to pick from. So unfortunately, the guest's voice uh, isn't as amplified as my voice uh, and as clear sounding, but you can still hear the guest. It's just not as, you know, full. I try to have the audio quality on this podcast be consistently good all the way through, but I had a bump as a friend on Twitter once told me we call those formative goofs. I now know that I won't do that next time. But please enjoy. This is a wonderful month. And honestly, the guests we have know so much about the movies that we talked about that you don't want to miss out on listening to it. It's not unlistenable, I promise. Anyway, here we go. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Physical Media Isn't Dead. It just smells funny. On this month's edition of Physical Media Isn't Dead, It Just Smells Funny, we have a very special guest coming up later in this episode. I'm reviewing five movies, two of which I'm going to do solo, but as I mentioned last month, I wanted to start having guests on to help me talk about these movies because I think it's something that should be shared. I think physical media is a thing. I have a lot of fond uh, feelings about as far as its communal aspect. I spent a lot of time collecting Blu-rays and watching them with my friends in college and post-college and hopefully well into the future when people can finally come back over to my house and watch movies. But I will let our special guest introduce himself when the time comes. But yes, we have five titles this month. I was hoping we'd have some new uh, distributors. I did reach out to a few. A few got back to me. A few said that they were going to send me some movies i have not received those movies yet and this is obviously coming out on like may 3rd so i don't want to delay it any longer i haven't have to get to my may titles at the end of the month so i decided why not just trudge ahead with our two favorite distributors kino lorber and criterion if the other distributors that i reached out to uh their movies get here late because our mail system isn't the best right now then I will just do a follow-up episode. No big deal, especially because the three or four things that may be coming my way are very exciting. Also, as I said last month, or started to do last month, I had a large uh, selection of titles this month. I couldn't get to all of them in an audio medium just to save myself the trouble of editing so much talk about so many movies. So five movies that we did not talk about on this episode will be on the IU Cinema blog. I encourage you all to go to the IU Cinema blog. There was just recently post from the wonderful and legendary Jack Miller, one of my favorite writers on the blog. The secret is I like all the writers we have on the blog. But he recently just did two articles, one about uh, the unknown Chaplin in 1983 documentary about Charlie Chaplin is more of a filmmaker than like an icon. And he also did a loving tribute to uh, recently deceased director uh, Monty Hellman, director of one of my favorite films, Tulane Blacktop. So please check out the ice in the blog, especially if you want to read about the five movies that I just could not cover here. But before you do that, I would like you to take a listen to Elizabeth Rell, my co-host and maybe future guest on the podcast that I spun off from the IU Cinema podcast. Anyway, here's Elizabeth Rell with the schedule at the IU Cinema this week. This week at IU Cinema, starting on Wednesday, May 5th, and available until May 19th, we have the 1938 film Pygmalion. Cranky professor Henry Higgins takes a bet that he can turn Cockney gutter snipe Eliza Doolittle into a proper lady in six months in this comedy of bad manners, based on the play by George Bernard Shaw. This Academy Award-winning inspiration for Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady was directed by Anthony Asquith and Leslie Howard. Stars Howard was edited by David Lean and scripted by Shaw himself. This is a part of our Any Day Matinee Classics Make Em Laugh series and is available free of charge if you are signed up for the IU Cinema weekly emails, which you can do by going to the contact page on the IU Cinema website. 
This was an exceptionally good month from Kino Lorber. <laughs> um, I think I've said that before. I just think Kino Lorber's a great um, distributor of movies. I know we love Criterion here. I love Criterion. I have my fair share of Criterions. But Kino Lorber has been going out of their way to restore lots of great crowd pleasers the last few uh, few months in cinematic classics. Everything, you know, from Spaceballs to like more obscure things, a thing I wrote about on the blog called Dynasty. They've been doing a bang-up job, and they've also started moving into the 4K world, a world that I admittedly have not delved into simply because I don't have the financial, let's call it, foresight (laughs) to save up for a 4K TV and a region-free 4K Blu-ray player, because if I'm going to get a 4K player, it may as well be region-free so I can spend more money on Blu-rays, I guess. Anyway, Kino Lorber has come out the gate strong this month, and I have two picks of the month this time, the first being from Kino Lorber, the other one being from Criterion. And I decided I would break up this episode before we get to our special guest and the three movies we'll talk about there and split up my picks of the month. So before we get to our guest in that, I would like to talk about my first pick of the month, their 4K restoration of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I don't know what I can say about the good, the bad, and the ugly that hasn't been said by much smarter people over the course of the decades <laughs> since its release. It came out in 1967. It is now 2020. The film is well over 40, nearly, or just 50 years old at this point. I don't know what else I can say that your dad and Quentin Tarantino hasn't already said about this movie. But what I can say is that I'm a big fan of the Man With No Name trilogy. I am an expert by no means, but I enjoy the Italian westerns, the few that I have seen, for many different reasons. One of the reasons I enjoy them so much, though, is while American westerns tend to focus on the external vistas in the cinematography, I like the fact that European and Italian westerns tend to have these incredible, like, interior shot compositions, or they focus more on, like, set design and things like that. I don't know, big fan. Sergio Leone's 1967 film starring Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach as the titular good, bad, and ugly, not in that order, taking place during the American Civil War about two seasoned killers and a chump, if we're being honest, although a very slimy chump, uh, played by Eli Wallach, all in the pursuit of a $200,000 cash, all the while the two factions of the Civil War fighting it out. It's an epic, it's nearly three hours, it's one of the best shot films I have ever seen. Like I said, I don't know what I could add to this that hasn't already been added to it, but I will say with the passing of Ennio Morricone in the past uh, year, it is an incredible movie to revisit and going in with the knowledge in your brain that Westerns before uh, his work with Sergio Leone and that like, Westerns didn't sound like this. They were orchestral scores. They were a lot of times they sounded a lot like Aaron Copeland's music, uh, if we're being completely honest. And I love Ennio Morricone so much. What you're probably hearing right now is like his ecstasy of gold piece from the movie. Ennio Morricone, they call him the maestro for a reason. The movie sounds incredible. Every little light motif that comes back in and out. Especially uh, when they do the uh, screen freezes with the the good, the bad, and the ugly drawn out by hand. Those with the gunshot, incredible. I'm mostly just gushing about this movie because, as I said, I don't really have anything to add to the conversation. I think this is a great film. I think you should check it out. Kino Lorber has gone above and beyond to make this a release worthy of you probably quadruple dipping at this point. It is the 4K. I was not able to watch it in 4K because, like I said, I do not have a 4K TV. But I did have a wonderful time going through, like, all of the new special features that were added. There's the old MGM release. A lot of those special features have carried over, such as Leone's West, the making of documentary. The featurettes about Ennio Morricone have also carried over. Well, I say featurettes. I mean featurette 
The original one from the MGM Blu-ray that came out God knows how long ago has returned. But also there is a part two featurette with additional information analysis of Ennio Morricone's music within this film. Great addition. There's the Leone style on Sergio Leone featurette, which I think is carried over from the MGM Blu-ray. The Man Who Lost the Civil War, which is carried over. The reconstruction of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is like the extended cut of the film. The audio commentaries have been switched out. It's now by film historian Tim Lucas. And there's also a Trailers from Hell segment with Ernest Dickerson, who rules. That's Spike Lee's DP and a director in his own right. You should definitely check out Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight if you've never seen it. It's a blast, but there's a nice segment of him doing commentary over the trailer for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, as well as trailers for the entire Man With No Name trilogy. It is a great release. I had not watched this in a few years when I popped it on. And I gotta say, after having gone through and watched some of Clint Eastwood's films from the 70s, especially the Westerns, especially High Plains Drifter, which is his whole take on the man with no name, like going through 70s revisionism and taking this character who, you know, there's no good guy within the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're all just varying shades of gray. And his idea for High Plains Drifter was to bring out that, like, that this man is evil (laughs) in his own way. Uh, If you hire him, you are making a deal with the devil. And his characters within, like, A Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more are still within that gray area. I think with Good and the Bad and the Ugly, like, he and Sergio Leone, like, pushed a character, like, closer to what Clint Eastwood is trying to get at in High Plains Drifter. Like, he is a somewhat vile man. But I think the genius of the film is that he is put next to someone who is pretty much evil, Lee Van Cleef as the bad, and then someone who's like a big greasy chump, Eli Wallach as Tuco. So I enjoy that as far as something I discovered upon rewatching the film. I would say if you do not own this movie at all, this is the release to pick up. Will there be another release of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in the future? I can almost guarantee it. There's just certain movies that are going to constantly be re-released, but we are in what people are calling the late stages of physical media, so it doesn't hurt to own the best version that you can get right now at a very reasonable price. But Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, available from Kino Lorber. It is my first pick of the month, and we'll get to my second pick of the month after we have my very special guest come on to talk about three films that I also received from Kino Lorber this month, and we'll be joining him right now. My name's Niall Arena, and um, I am a co-founder of Cicada Cinema here in Bloomington, Indiana. That's the main thing. I do some stuff by day in media, but the most fun thing I did was co-found Cicada Cinema with with you, David. I know, with you and all of our <laughs> friends at the Gadabout who are now yeah. in New York and Born Josh White. Josh Brewer. Yeah, I mean, it's it truly is one of the happiest things I've ever done in my life. Absolutely. And it's been it's been a tragedy that we haven't been able to do it. I miss it. I miss it so much. I miss it. Yeah, we were literally just scheming about all the different ways we're going to get movies played in this town. That's right. Hell or high water, but we're here to talk about home media. Yes. Uh, we, as we, you know, as we are in the emerging stages of the pandemic, we're here to talk about the things that you can watch safely at home. And Niall, uh, being my friend, and we share a lot of physical media back and forth. I decided I'm just gonna give him, you know, all of my movies to watch, or like a vast majority of them. Uh, and we settled on three to talk about the three that brought us the most joy. To one of which we are both uh, were huge fans of before we had even like you know had rewatched or whatever, and then uh, two movies that were discoveries to me, and one of which you know a lot about. Uh, but we'll start with the first movie, The Wildlife. Oh man! Uh, <laughs> I think directed by someone named Art Liston. Linson, yeah, Linson, yeah. An interesting dude, because he he only made one other movie, but it's it's one that I don't know if you've seen, but it's it's you know God, it's kind of cult following um it was the first movie that hunter s thompson made it was where the buffalo Road. yes with uh bill murray yeah, a, Boyle. yes yes yeah yes yeah and then mostly a producer um <clears throat> uh everything from fight club to heat yeah. to you know a lot of other things and then has i think written a couple other movies but uh wildlife yeah second and at least so far final uh yeah 
I mean, and it's funny. This is one of those movies where it's kind of it's one of those movies where it feels like it fits more into the writer's oeuvre than it does the director's <laughs> oeuvre, even though the director did produce Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But this is also a movie written by Cameron Crowe, right. post Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, pre him having, I think it's pre Say Anything. It's 1984. Fast Times was 1982. Yeah, I think Say Anything right. is like 86. I don't know. I, I, I might. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Um, you're right. Uh, but. This is almost a sequel without having any of the same characters to a fa- to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, and you've got some of the same, you know, kind of. Well, it's in the family, right? Fast yeah. Times. You have Spicoli played mm-hmm. by Sean Penn. This one, you've got a Crispin, a buff like felt Crispin. And yeah. I have I love Crispin in all shapes and sizes. It's just sure. it's just as someone who mostly you know Reservoir Dogs being like the biggest one is just like a. Oh my! Oh wow! <laughs> like this man, and like I, I think probably cast for that exact reason, but also featuring a young Eric Stoltz, a young Leia Thompson, pre Back to the Future, where Eric Stoltz and Leia Thompson originally were the two cast. Like Leia Thompson still in Back to the Future, Eric Stoltz was originally going to be Marty McFly in the movie. They shot a large majority of the movie with him. This is not a secret. You can go on YouTube and watch scenes from the movie and yeah. with comparisons with Michael J. Fox. Uh, and then they decided wrong energy cast Michael J. Fox, but it's crazy that they're in this movie together right before that. I'm assuming a producer or someone saw this movie and was like, great, these two have chemistry. Let's cast them in back to the future together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of see why, you know, cause at least why, you know, they would kind of go, cause it's <clears throat> definitely a similar kind of thing to McFly in this movie, even really like, you know, he's, He's the kind of goody-goody kid. He's a little too good for his own. And he's kind of in his own way, you know. And, mm-hmm. like, just when when Chris Penn... So we, sh- we should say that, you know, yeah. to give away the whole movie. But, yeah. you know, it seems like, as, as I followed it, and I could mm-hmm. be wrong, but I think Chris Penn and Eric Stoltz both have graduated college... Or graduated high school, but they're not in college. Mm-hmm. Eric Stoltz has moved out of his house. He's got an apartment. But it's that kind of, you know, the just as Fast Times is kind of dealing with the kind of less than exciting realities sometimes of those milestones of young adulthood. He can't pay for this place. And so Chris Penn moves in as the horribly mismatched roommate. But, you know, Stoles is like, he's, you know, he's a little bit too much of a stuffed shirt. Leah Thompson and him before the movie starts have broken up. Now she's having these liaisons with a cartoonishly handsome... Cartoonishly handsome, but also not cartoonishly uh, gross cop. Just a cop (laughs) who's much older than her. Right. (laughs) And there's something I think that should be said that like, just just for anyone who loves movies from the 80s or or loves movies about kind of like the unseen L.A. It's not Musso and Frank L.A. Not that that isn't cool, but this other side, the donut shop. And the bowling alley in this movie. Oh Incredible. My oh my God. I I have never wanted to go to two places so much in my entire life. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and, and there, there's something to it. I mean, clearly a, a favorite of, you know, I think after you you gave it to me, we were batting back and forth. Like, oh, clearly Paul Thomas Anderson is is in love with this movie. At least at some point, Robert Ridgely is in there as the sleazy apartment complex manager. Yeah. You know, in the very much similar to the Colonel in Boogie Nights energy. Um but also just that kind of love letter to the all-night donut shop, to the bowling alley. Obviously, the mall is in there, which is, which yeah. is fun. But for me, it was just like, I, I want to live in this bowling alley. This looks so this is the L- This is the L.A. I imagine when I imagine an L.A. I would actually like to live in. Well, and I, I, I also just remember that you've got a great, you've got a lot of great cameos in it. You've got Randy Quaid just in one kind of really heartbreaking scene as a Vietnam vet. Yes. You've got Rick Moranis as the kind of skeevy. Yeah, like three scene skeevy department store owner who keeps changing his hair. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. And, and, and really um, playing against type, or at least what we, we know is Rick Moranis, you've also got Lee Ving from the band Fear mm-hmm. making. I don't think maybe his first feature film appearance, but a real memorable one is the this the cable guy who basically becomes the third roommate mm-hmm. of poor Eric Stoles and Chris Chris Penn, and uh, and then you have Kitten Nivadad Nativadad the uh, oh, right, yeah. the Russ like one of Russ Meyer's old girlfriends right. and a famous Russ Meyer girl in the strip club scene, yeah. and it just feels like a very like L A like like oh. Kitten's around, like, she'll be in the movie. Like, it feels like a very, like, L.A., like, who's around? Yeah. And who do we like? Right. Well, and there's, there's there's a fun thing, too, about that, you know, I think the comparisons, obviously, to Fast Times at Richmond High 
make total sense. But I think the difference between the two maybe is in maybe is in the direction or just kind of the vibe where, you know, Amy Heckerling I think is a little bit more pointed at how you're supposed to feel about some of these characters a little bit. Yeah. You know, there there's maybe less care to some of them, and and you know you feel pretty bad for Jennifer Jason Lee at different points. You feel bad for Phoebe Cates. You maybe feel less bad for Spicoli. Yes. Um, or our Judge Reinhold, you can maybe kind of enjoy his misery a little bit. <laughs> but what I found like watching this one is is a little bit more uh, it reminded me of Jonathan Demi and that kind of okay. just, this ambivalence or even love for even some of the crummy characters or smaller characters and even in that that kind of strip club sequence where you know it's it's kind of gross yes you know the guys are being gross it's also kind of sad you feel bad for chris pin yeah but there's not really a judgment it's not trying to say these are guys being gross you know because they don't know what else to do uh it's it's I don't know it's in the same way of kind of Melvin and Howard where you're just kind of working through characters who just aren't always making the right choices but they're not making sinister choices exactly it's, it's not a moral yes movie and that was kind of sweet because I I love Jimmy I, for that I love love the fact that you touched upon that because that was my biggest thing about this movie is that it what that's why I keep coming back to it I watched it twice before oh, yeah. like uh and I was like I was like. There's some, as far as 80s movies concerned, there's the, the you know, the dated aspect that we already talked about or whatever. And like, you know, you you are stepping around landmines because of the time period or whatever. <laughs> but nothing in here, there's nothing in here that I would say feels like hateful or exploitative right. in any sort of like sinister or like ag, like aggro way. Like right. like everyone, like there's no like real racial caricatures. Like, like yeah. I feel like obviously not as much as Amy Heckling pays with like the interiority of the women in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but like sure. the the women in the movie feel like real people. Like, yeah. like you feel for Leia Thompson and like her, like, and her recognizes like, yeah, I know I'm sleeping with a cop who's like twice my age or whatever. Like, <laughs> and like her journey, like, discovering things about him and herself and her relationship with Eric Stoltz, like, it's very sweet, yeah, like, yeah. when you get down to it. Well, and the way that they talk to each other with the way Jenny Wright, who also, by the way, I mean, we haven't mentioned, yeah. but Jenny Wright, uh, doing great stuff as kind of the, the you know, fourth, and if it's kind of a quartet of, you know, young characters yeah. in it, you've got Chris Penn, Eric Stoltz, and then you've got Leah Thompson and Jenny Wright. Jenny Wright from World According to Garp and Near Dark and... I'm blanking on some others. Uh, Shock to the system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she shows up in there. Uh, um, but, but you know, the way that they talk to each other, it's it's not, you know, just as the jilted high school girlfriends of these two guys as they kind of drift through the disappointments. I don't know. It feels even better than, you know, something like Kicking and Screaming, which mm-hmm. is from a little bit later, but is kind of also yeah. dealing with that ennui of like, well, what do we do? No, and Eric Stoltz shows up there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the townie who's just just stays on. Wait, what's Eric Stoltz up to these, these days? I, I just I don't know. I just feel like I've been seeing him in a lot of movies and thinking about late a lot of, about him lately, and I'm just like a Eric Stoltz, a good good actor. What should be in more things? Yeah, I like yeah. his energy. He was in, oh he was in her smell a few years ago. He was great as like her uh as a uh. uh as the manager to the yeah. to the Courtney Love esque rock star in that movie, yeah. wears one little earring. It's very funny. Uh, it's well, besides Anthony Rapp, is is he our 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 best ginger? Probably. He might be among our. I mean, we have yeah. Dom Hall Gleason, but yeah. for his age group. As far as age groups go, yeah. also like best ginger. I think so. I think so. <laughs> He's in the running. <laughs> but. Uh, Yes, you can find uh, the wildlife on Kino Lorber. We both enjoyed it very much. Um, oh, and we, we should tell the last uh, commentary, I think, posthumous commentary of uh, uh, Mike McBeardo. Yes, who is associated with so many of these types of like, not Anna, not like, I don't know how you describe like because he's like he's associated with like Better Off Dead and like oh I don't know these teen comedies that are a little nastier. I don't know how would you describe it. More slice of life, or, or just in terms of messaging, you know, it's a little bit more, I feel like, someone like Richard Linklater, not that he's always dealing with teens, but in terms of taking up that man- mantle where, you know, we're just we're just showing you kind of how life and the, the kind of, you know, milestones of young adulthood happen. We're not saying that they're good. We're not saying that they're bad. We're not saying that this is 
you know, the, a triumph or something like that. But they do happen, and, and we're kind of showing you maybe kind of how that is. And, and in that, maybe there's some comfort. Maybe there's some, some laughter, but also there's some catharsis. But it doesn't, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I think in the same way, you know, those 80s teen, teen movies don't always champion what's going on. It, you know, it's 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 different than Revenge of the Nerds, right? We're, yes. we're not making a judgment call on what these people are doing. We're just saying, you know, at some point you have your own first apartment and you might destroy it with <laughs> a party you didn't want. Oh my god, we can't even. Okay. Yeah, we can't even get into the party in this movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, also, uh, if you are a big dork like me, there is. It's not a cameo. It's just they haven't uh, ascended to the thing that they are known for. Uh, the a gas station or like convenience store owner that uh chris pin is trying to buy alcohol from that is dean devlin right yes and yeah. i just remember being like oh i forgot that he acted in things before he like went on to like write screenplays and produce like hit movie after hit movie throughout like the 90s yeah. so yeah. uh that's that's something special if you're a big dork who loves that stuff this is this is not to digress yeah. too much into this but i had a revelation like that watching uh quick change yes there's another kind of demi it's mm-hmm. not demi but it should be demi it's, yeah it's like miami blues right how is this not demi yeah uh the um shopkeeper who's taking too long who's like smoking a cigarette yes when bill murray's in a real hurry he has to get changed for the bus or the, the yeah. mob is going to find him and the yeah. cops are going to find him it's steve park from fargo and a serious man oh you are it's right steve, except the mystery steve, yeah it's steve park oh you know, my it god be, but then it, it's i, I watch in the credits it's steve park and so yeah the the there should be a book someone should do of the the great uh, uh, you know, either liquor store or gas station attendant cameos of, of, <laughs> of all time. Oh they my! Would both be in there. I would love. I'd love it. Uh, you can find the wildlife on Kino Lorber right now. Um, and with that, no smooth transition here. We will yeah. be. Uh, Nile, please tell the audience about because you were familiar with this movie before I. I was blown away by it. This one was like little hidden gems that I feel like. Uh, has been like kind of resurrected because of this like double feature release. Uh, Cast a Dark Shadow is a double feature with Wanted for Murder, but uh, Wanted for Murder, while uh, it's interesting in its own way, it's the B side to the A side of this record. There are interesting things in it that I could talk about. Uh, was it uh, Emmerich Pressburger or Michael Powell wrote the? Michael Powell, I think yeah. wrote it, co-wrote the screenplay. Yeah, co-wrote Emmerich the screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like of Powell and Pressburger of the Red Shoes and right. Life and Death of Colonel yeah, Blimp. So sure that interesting. But Cast the Dark Shadow. Yeah. What is this movie, Nile? Oh man. Well, you know, I I feel like it's it's fair to say that it's been a, it's been a long lockdown. And here in Indiana, in, in, in Bloomington, we had a real bad snowstorm in, in late February. Knew it was coming, but it was just, it was, like, it snowed, and then it snowed, and then it stopped, and then it snowed again. And so I was going stir-crazy and listening to this very long, you know, just godsend of a podcast between Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino talking about their favorite British films. And there's some deep cuts on there. It was also the list supplied to them by Martin Scorsese. So between those three, that's a very yeah. deep, deep bench but they were talking about the kind of post-war studio, British studio era, which I had studied a little bit of when, when you know, I was looking at Ministry of Information films and kind of how that moved into um, Shepherd and Studios and Ealing and things like that. Anyway, so I was kind of already in the mind of like, well, what are some great 1945 onwards British films? And I'm a huge Dirk Bogard mm-hmm. fan who stars in yes. Cast a Dark Shadow. I hadn't seen it and tracked it down and saw that, you know, Cohen Media... Yes. Um, through Kino Lorber, you know, had, had done a restoration of it. And, oh, my God. I mean, just to, to say nothing of, sometimes I think that the audience for an older film gets cut in half for how well it's been preserved, tragically, right? But but if something looks and sounds as old as it is, you're going to lose some some people just because, you know, the mono sound recording or it's fuzzed out. You, you can't really kind of lose yourself into the kind of the, the, the dream of cinema. The great thing about Cast of Dark Shadow is it looks beautiful. It's pristine. I mean, it looks better than the, the uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
remember as new. It's like, when was this shot? I was, I was like blown away how clean it looked. Yeah. F- like that opening in the, the fun house. Oh my God. Oh, uh, one of the best openings to a film noir I've ever it seen in my just, entire life. It just starts and, and. It sets oh. the, t- but it also sets the tone really well because it's right. for, you know, if you haven't seen the movie yet and I highly suggest you will, and we will not be spoiling it because yeah, part no, of this no, movie no, no, is no. just the twist and the turns that yeah. uh, it goes through. It is not this like austere or incredibly like dour British film noir. It's a very like wicked and pointed movie, yes. which is like the basic premise being that uh, Dirk Bogard uh, playing someone who's nicknamed Teddy Bear. I think his first name is Edmund or something. They never yeah. call like they never they call him Teddy most of the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. His last name is Bear. Uh, <laughs> is married to a rich widow. He is a sociopath for all <laughs> intents and purposes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he. A rotter. <laughs> <laughs> and this is truly just the first act. This is not a twist. Yeah. He murders this woman for her money, assuming that he will be left in the will to receive everything, right. only to find out that he has left the house, only the house, and that all of her other uh, wealth is going to go to her sister. Right, next uh, to Ken. Next to Ken. Yeah. And uh, her lawyer uh, is very suspicious of him. Uh, and he takes it upon himself because, you know, he all he, all he exists on is greed. Uh, he goes to like find another fish to hook. Right. Uh, and from there, I will let the story unravel itself to you. Yeah. So it's it's it's, it's one that I, I defy anyone to guess what's happening because I I'm 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 a junkie for yeah. whodunits, murder mysteries, especially kind of the, the you know, you know there's a thing you know in in uh, British history called the well made play right you know just sort of these you know Swiss watches of drama I would say this is you know, a case for the well-made movie, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's tidy. It's, it's short. Oh, 80 minutes. It's like minutes, 80 minutes. Yeah. Minutes, yeah. Something like that. Um, but w- what's really incredible is that I even knowing that, okay, there's going to be a twist. There's going to be a turn. We kind of have more characters than we need. You know, this is, you know, too much of a thing. I still did not see it coming. The third act. And I should say that it's yeah. based on a play by Janet Green. Oh, Okay. Um, um, who you know, didn't write the screenplay but wrote the play that it's based on, and it was it was a very very popular um, play. I think the film didn't do so well, uh, but you can see just the sort of you know whatever the the blueprint for. I mean, this is before Psycho. This is before Purple Noon, or, mm-hmm. or you know, I don't even I don't know when Richard Highsmith started writing the Ripley books, but you can kind of see the architecture for all those things where you're rooting for. As you say, yeah, total sociopath, total anti-hero, mm-hmm. but it's Dirk Bogart at his most just charming and the So charming. That is what makes it like, you're like, yeah. a, I understand why, like, like if this yeah. like man slinked along, yeah. like, I was like, like yes, he's yeah. very sexy. Yeah, this very- proto-Tom Ripley that you you can tell. But what, what I think is incredible too is that it's the cleverest in terms of really getting across so the audience knows that he's cursed by bad timing right yes. everything is just bad timing on bad timing on bad timing where all the plotting is kind of deft and you see him execute it but it's imagine the everyone points to you know the, the part in psycho where anthony hopkins as as norman bates is watching the car sink into the swamp and it stops for a minute and people point out like well then the audience was rooting for him because you know but you don't really know what anthony perkins has has done you know, yeah. you don't know what Norman Bates has done as a character so far. If he's responsible for it, you think the mother is still alive. Um, and so I would say this is goes even further, and it's five years earlier. It's 1955, and you are wanting Dirk Bogart to kind of get away with it, and you're a little hurt that he's not yeah. going to come into yeah. the money, and then yeah. he has to kind of go back to what seems like, I think it's Brighton. I, I should have looked into it, but wherever the kind of, you know, Pleasure Island boardwalk mm-hmm. is, and he's... He's reading, and, it, and it's amazing. And I'm sure if it hadn't been this beautiful restoration, you wouldn't notice it. <laughs> the magazine he's reading, when he's kind of, you know, out on the prowl after he's killed his first wife, but he realizes he doesn't really have the money that he was expecting to, so he can't he can't go all over the world, um, is a muscle magazine. It's like a men's fitness magazine, okay. which is, again, this kind of Tom Ripley or proto-Tom Ripley where, you know, sexuality is yeah. kind of, you know a little bit slippery, it's a little bit un- uncertain, but also kind of, I thought, bold for Dirk Bogard, yes. just for his life, and, you know, kind of how he was also, um, you know, the signifier of, of you know, queer British cinema, and, you know, things like um, 
uh, uh, victim, but yes. also accident. Mm-hmm. And I should say that I think um, Janet Green wrote the screenplay for uh, Accident, or, okay. or, or, or no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, the Pinter wrote that, but um, the the guy directed Cast of Dark Shadow directed Accident, and oddly enough, Alfie, which oh, is not necessarily okay. about a sociopath seducing older yeah. women. But, you know, in this kind of... Similar, a play, yeah, a playboy. Yeah, yeah. The sexual mores. Yeah. And, and I think that's a big part of this is that, you know, apart from the murder mystery, which is great, but the kind of nuance that the lawyer also is laying it on pretty hard on Dirk, Dirk Bogart's character because it's obvious that he doesn't love this woman because she's not as attractive. She's older. She's a dowager. You know, she looks like a, a you know, sort of just, you know... English pensioner of, yes. of the time. Yes. And that there's this kind of sexual element that, well, of course, there's some kind of money exchanged. Yes. And, and how you see, you know, a little bit later, Michael Caine and Alfie, it's like, well, that's kind of interesting that mm-hmm. this guy's film work. I think he also directed The Spy Who Loved Me. And I don't know that ties in. But it's, it's, it's just fun that this is kind of all part of it. Fun fact also, Janet Green, who wrote the play, um, did not the screenplay, but did write the screenplay for the Basil Dearden film Sapphire. Oh, which is another Edgar yeah. Wright, yes, 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 you know, and and another one that's very interesting in terms of not just kind of the mores of post-war uh, England and you know the racial mores and all these things, but also about it has to be pretty frank about sex. Yeah. Oh, and, yes, and, and yes. Sex when it's not just love between a married man and a married woman this kind of uncomfortable thing, but kind of before the yes. swinging sixties. Yes. Well, I love the, I love the fact that, you know, like so many other films, like he, he does not get sexual pleasure from like actual sex or like a woman being attractive or any of those things. Or if he is queer coat, like it, right. it still doesn't even really factor in right. like the thing that arouses him is money. Yeah. That is like, that is what it yeah. is. It is, it is the money. And it's also kind of the like, and I'm going to get away with it too. Like, right. I don't know when I watch this film and I watch the performance and it's like, he seems as if he is almost aroused at the prospects of when things go well for him. Right. If it concerns money or him literally getting away with murder. Yep. Like, I, I don't know. I love that. A great double feature. I mean, wanted for murder again, it's very fun and, and, and yeah. great double feature with it comes on the disc. Yes. Um, but a great double feature for me would be cast a dark shadow. And then the servant, Oh, because you can yes. almost see this kind of parallel. Yes. It's the same character almost, but he's just figured out that he can't quite... Because it's also about class, and I guess mm-hmm. we haven't said that too. Yeah, it's yet. very much about you class, know, that's yeah. That's the most interesting thing about a, a you know, British Because war, the, the but... next woman he meets is like, has money because she's a widower, but is of lower status. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, other kind of striving, yeah. you know, yeah, upwardly mm-hmm. opportunistic. But, you know, then you have the servant where it's just the guy who's figured out, okay... Well, don't marry the dowager. Just sort of obliterate the wealthy guy that you're the gentleman's gentleman of. Mm-hmm. Obliterate his relationships, and you can kind of take it. Over. I mean, of course, the servant gets much weirder. M- much weirder. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, yes. Cast the dark shadow. I, I would say a hidden like if I had a hidden gem of the month, like that would be it. Like, oh my god, I, you had talked to me about it, and I was so happy when they like it finally showed up, and I watched it, and I got to show it to a friend, and I was I I have not stopped thinking about the like tit for tat dialogue in that yeah. movie, but I don't want to get into it. It's a movie that unfolds itself to you. Uh, like Niall said, it was released uh, through it's released on Cohen Media through Kino Lorber. You can check it out there. Uh, speaking of things that are nasty, uh, this month the Kino Lorber finally uh, Kino Lorber acquired the rights that were once held by Shout Factory to re-release Mel Brooks's directorial debut, my favorite Mel Brooks film, a, a movie that is going to inspire a tattoo I'll get on my. <laughs> face someday i don't know i will get a tattoo from this movie someday uh what's the tattoo now you have to say oh the tattoo is it zero mostel uh saying like look at me now i'm wearing a cardboard belt and him ripping up the belt and that oh my god that there's some things that become part of our like dna our personality Mm -hmm. dna and i think that that yeah also for for sure oh no just sweaty and just being like like and look at me now like what have i got Nothing. Anyway, we're here to talk about the 1967 film, The Producers. Uh, as you can tell, me and I are already big fans of this movie. Oh, uh, it is, I would say it's probably the basis of every scheme, like every scheme we've ever come up with to do anything. I feel like 
has just been a out of the textbook of the produ- like mm-hmm. of the producers. And, and I think in those schemes, David, you are you are definitely Gene Wilder. Yeah, you are definitely Zero. You're Monster. always afraid I'm going to jump up. <laughs> always holding my blankie. Yeah. Trying to smile to calm you down. It doesn't really work. <laughs> I still look angry. <laughs> This is this is one of those movies that like I debated. I was like, well, what what can I say about it? But then I realized I was like, well, I feel like enough years have passed that people might be more familiar with the remake of the Broadway musical than right. they are with the original one because right. I feel like of uh, Mel Brooks's oeuvre, yeah. besides maybe some of the later ones like you know Dracula Dead and Loving It or whatever. Like <laughs> besides those, like kind of the most least played and underrated of all it despite like it having a big cultural footprint like people know what springtime for hitler are like but i think they know it through the prism of like that broadway play and the remake of the broadway play with you know with me which i don't really have a big problem with the remake at all because i like that cast movie but it is funny how it kind of seems like that movie is just this movie with songs added in right and like a couple of things taken out like i don't I, i don't understand the I don't understand the choices made sometimes, but it's it's less of a sin I feel like than a musical about the Fellini film Eight and a Half <laughs> that was called Nine that was then made into a film with an extraordinary cast, an incredible cast, also called Nine, and you watch it and you go, why, why am I watching? Yeah, why? Why, what, why am I watching? I don't I don't understand. Yeah, Eight and a Half is an, it's not you know von Stroheim's greed. We we can still watch Eight and a Half. Why yeah. do we anyway? Anyway. <laughs> But this is, but this is to say, also, I feel like what you miss with that remake and we'll get into the movie itself is like, you miss that like borscht belt touch that Mel, like you, it completes all this. And like a lot of reviews for this movie talk about how Jewish this movie is. It's very, and and, and it was a cult hit and it was, we'll get into it, but yes. Yeah. Well, well, all I want to say too is that I think the the biggest disappointment when I was a teenager, I think when the the producers the musical and then the film mm-hmm. were really hitting it big and then yeah the Nathan Lane Matthew Broderick adaptation um, of the musical came out the biggest change is that they uh, change who plays Adolf Hitler yes in and it's to play within the film and it completely changes what the joke is right. in that scene right for in my for the worse in my opinion yeah. we gotta talk about at least I, I I'm we need to talk about Dick it yeah. Sean. Yes. Dick Sean, who plays Lorenzo St. Dubois. LSD, baby. LSD. His sequence, I watched it about three times because I knew we were going to talk about it. I, I watched the movie and then I, watched, I went back and watched it. There isn't an SNL sketch out there. And I'm talking about since 1977. There isn't an SNL sketch that's, that's better than the like five minutes from when Dick Sean comes on thinking that he's auditioning for some like kind of hair knockoff hippie musical and then with his backup group his like all girl band backup group which is a keyboard a saxophone <laughs> and, and sings sings his song love power yes for the group and what's great is that you know there are things that are very much of its late 60s time right there 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 is you know the the director who's eccentric and wears a dress and his assistant who's clearly coded to be kind of an effete gay you know theatrical producer or you know you know stage hand they're all in on the joke of lsd yeah. being terrible and so it's kind of a wonderful scene too where it's not look at the the funny guys who are coded as gay yes look at these guys it it's them being horrified by a guy who's so terrible at performing this song in the biggest suede boots I have <laughs> wearing wearing a Campbell soup can as a necklace. I mean, it's it's a work of art. Dick Sean should have gotten an Oscar just for singing "Love Power." It's <sighs> it's, it's amazing. It's amazing send up of, and it's not just you know I think you could see it as a send up of like the hippie movement or something like that. It's not. It's a I think it's a send up of. The squares who tried to cash in on that kind of like, oh, Calcutta hair, you know, mm-hmm. oh, oh, dad, poor dad, mom's hugging in the closet yeah. and I'm feeling so sad side of, of Broadway and legitimate theater because he's 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 a you know, he's a doofus, but he's not actually part of the counterculture. And I think that like that that level of the joke is so, so good. <sighs> 
Well, that's a, this is what, and this is what's missing from every other, not that I've seen the on Broadway (laughs) 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 version of this, but just a lot, the layer, like the layers to the jokes is what makes this movie so funny. It's not just that it's like a borscht belt joke or that it's about musical theater. Like it's never just one thing at the same time. It's many, it's many very funny things that build up to one he, like the entire production of Springtime for Hitler, get like you could write a a dissertation about why that is funny. Yeah, like there's not enough grad school <laughs> quotas in the world. To, oh my in God. the movie, in the movie, like this is why I think Mel Brooks is one of the best comedy writers. A controversial statement. Mel Brooks great at writing comedy, but the like we talk about like uh, yes, screenplays have to have these things in it. We should give him credit for the fact that like from the first joke of this movie. To the final joke of this movie, all intersect and point to the production of Springtime for Hitler in a way where you're like, I completely buy the farce in of this as right. to how this could become a hit, like this perfect storm. Right. How it could, it's not tossed together. It's not like, a, oh, we just got a bunch of bad things together and it made a good musical. Like, no, every joke leads up to the punchline that it's like, a, it's not just that this man is terrible. It's that he's terrible in a very specific way that then turns the entire thing into a satire. Right. That's it's the one. It's it's like the one thing, and then you realize that all the other things surrounding it. The as Franz Liebkin, Franz Liebkin, right. yeah, yes. like yes. all like like his unadulterated passion for Adolf Hitler. Like when it's unrestricted and very sincere, it's like yeah, that does then become that becomes camp, which is why I don't like the remake as much as because like a well that layers to the joke are gone. You've just turned it into like, kind of like not homophobic, but just like we're laughing at it because he's gay, which all of, which then just makes it camp. It's like a, no, that's not what camp is. This is camp. It's like all these like disparate elements coming together to make something so wonderful and weird, honestly. And I don't know that, that is the brilliance to me of this movie. Also just like how sweaty zero Mostel is. And it's, (laughs) I mean, if we're talking about Oscar, like, like I think he won the Oscar for best sweat. (laughs) it's crazy to to think about zero mostel also in his career you know he's he's this washed up producer at this point but zero mostel i think it's also worth saying you know was blacklisted yes and he was he was angry like he was was like yeah blacklisted destroyed his career but also had a great um because of that you know kind of theatrical career doing more avant-garde stuff he was in a tv uh play with burgess meredith of waiting for godot where he's, you know, he's, yeah. he's in, and the kind of Gene Wilder, Zero Mostel interplay is a lot like, a, you know, kind of the Beckett one, two, the kind of overbearing, you know, blowhard character, and then the kind of, you know, put upon one who has to kind of pick up the pieces, but this kind of, you know, weird male codependency of that kind of comedy, which comes from vaudeville, but also the kind of English dance hall circuit, things like Brighton, you know, kind of, sorry, not dance hall, music hall. Yes. Kind of, kind of comedy and i think that's what makes it great too is that you you have these kind of tropes it's it's laurel and hardy but you know it's it's also through the kind of you know grinder of being bogged down and tragedy and being kind of washed up and the horrible horrible not even comb over it's like comb, oh comb up, up yeah oh my god yeah thanks to kino lorber's beautiful restoration <laughs> You can see every strand and how it's not really hair, and uh, uh, just how 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 great that office is with the posters that say you know the the musical version of Hamlet, which is Funny Boy. Uh. I mean, it's 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 like a Mad Magazine drawing full of jokes. Like there's just oh, jokes the, just like I know, and like <laughs> the verbal version of that joke, just like the Kafka uh, joke, just like, and he's like, no, too good. <laughs> <laughs> And I was just like, uh, someone like, I wonder if someone's ever made a play adaptation of, right. or mu- sorry, a musical adaptation right. of Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. It's uh, incredible. It's an incredible film. I, I so we good. we could kind of talk like it could just be its own episode. Like oh, I don't. Yeah, yeah. To but, peel that onion. But, but yeah, I, I just wanted to say like uh, this is by far the like my favorite thing that I got to read. Obviously, I've seen this movie so many times, but. Like I said up, up top, I don't think it's as, you know, as like a young Frankenstein or a Blazing Saddles or like a Spaceballs. Like, this doesn't get played very often. I don't know how many people have seen the original version in a long time. So I'm like, 
this is the time. Like they're the it's packaged with I think a lot of the same special features that were on the uh Shout Factory yeah. Blu-ray. Well, well and on that, I mean I mean just for kind of context, there's a little thing of Paul Mazursky reading Peter Sellers uh letter to Variety that was published mm-hmm. in Variety magazine after the producers opened, and Peter Sellers loved this movie. Okay. If you think about it, this is you know Well, I have a fun fact about it. Oh, that. okay, yeah, yeah. He was originally going to be cast in this in the Gene Wilder role. And the actually the 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 casting of this movie is super interesting. I, I don't mean to like cut your thought uh, your no, thought no, off, no, no, no. but Peter Sellers was originally ta- uh, like like was offered it, yeah. and then he said I, I accept. They never contacted him back for some reason. Huh. Um, and then also within the Gene Wilder role, Dustin Hoffman was considered. Uh, <laughs> Mel Brooks was married to Anne Bancroft, who was in The Graduate. Dustin Hoffman was like, I would really like to audition for this role in The Graduate. Mel Brooks didn't think he was going to get the role. So he's like, yeah, go ahead and do it. Ended up in The Graduate with Anne uh, Bancroft. And that's why eventually it got to Gene Wilder. And 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 thank God it did. Uh, yeah. O- only because that kind of thing that Gene Wilder can only do, that kind of like pained earnestness that's just kind of tilted and tilted and tilted until it's about to split, you know, it would just change the dynamic so much. I can't imagine anyone else. Just like imagine like, yeah, someone else playing, you know, Frankenstein and, and Young Frankenstein. Like, well, no, that's not even, that's not a movie. There, there's, you know, he hadn't been, I think, in much of a lead role before. Then he pops up in other stuff, and he's in his thirties. Yeah, yeah, he no, he's person. not like he's not like young, yeah, young, not a young guy. But man, yeah, thank God. Also, because Peter Sellers, by that point, especially. Insane. It was insane. Yes, <laughs> and that and that is a that whole. Been the last movie Mel Brooks would have ever been. Oh my to try God. and direct. I mean, it is funny. It is funny when you think about it. Like you would imagine, Peter Sellers could would be in a Mel Brooks mo- movie, but right. at the time, Mel Brooks is becoming a filmmaker. You do not want Peter Sellers in, in your Zero Mostel too, because I think Zero Mostel also not difficult in the way that we think of like Klaus Kinski being yeah. difficult yeah. <laughs> on a set, but Zero Mostel not easy to to do just because he was so apparently so fussy that he would just moan and moan and moan that he was too tired, that he wasn't good enough anymore, that his knees hurt him, all these things. If you combine that with Peter Sellers, like the, the kvetching on set <laughs> would, would just, it, it would just implode. Oh my it God. It would just become an Ernie Kovacs. It would, yeah. It would just, it would just <laughs> that in itself could be a move. Like that, like just, oh, yeah. just make the fictionalized document of oh, that. Yeah. The Ed Wood <laughs> behind the scenes. Oh my God. Like I said, I could go on and on, but we we should wrap this up. Niall, thank you so much for being on this. You will this will not be the last time oh, you will be so. on this on this. There's a good chance you're gonna be on next month. Uh if if there's anything you'd like to plug, go ahead and plug it. If not, that's also fine. Even if you just want to say, I love movies, go watch them. That's fine with me. I'll just say that, you know, since we've all been stuck at home, I'm sure I'm not unique that I've been watching a lot, but uh I might be unique that I've not let um, streaming giants be the thing that determines what I watch, and it, it's really easy. I, I'm I'm uh, not to to you know pull too many puns from zero Mostel movies, but I am not a rich man, uh, and and if I was, I'd sing about it. But uh, I'm not a rich man, but I've still found a way to to find some stuff that's yes. really fun to watch. These you know reissues, all the movies we talked about, eminently affordable for any budget. Yes. And well worth it. There, there's, there's not a price tag that you could put yes. on it. And as I have stressed in articles and on this podcast and just everywhere, it's just like a if you have a local library, support it. I would say I don't know about during the pandemic or whatever, but like seven or eight times out of ten, if you request something, they will get it in. If you go to a university, you have the biggest interlibrary loan uh available to you possible if you happen to have a video store like a vulture video in your town go ahead and support it there are ways to watch these movies in a physical medium without breaking your bank and you're supporting something good and if you do have the money to own it great because now you have something that you can share with a friend like i did with nile it's yeah. very easy to do so it's thank worth you it. worth every penny yes so thank you so much nile we'll have you back on soon it's been a pleasure thanks <laughs> Thank you, Niall, for the lovely discussion about those three lovely films. It's always a pleasure to talk to Niall about movies. That's why I got conned into starting a pop-up theater with him and our other lovely friends in the first place, because I just love talking to them about movies. 
I saved the piece de resistance for last. And if you can tell by how good my French is, buckle up for this segment, everybody, because we're talking about a French film. I'm, I've tried my best to get the pronunciations correct, but, you know, please show some mercy. My pick of the month is Criterion's release of the 1996 film by Oliver Asayas, starring the international superstar, one of my favorite actresses of all time, Maggie Chung in Irma Vep. To explain what Irma Vep is, is a daunting task that I have in front of me. So for those of you who don't know, Oliver Isaias is a postmodern filmmaker. Uh, his career started sometime in the late 80s. I would say it exploded in the 90s in aughts. And everyone's brand of postmodernism is different from anybody else's. But I would say that his form of postmodernism is born out of the fact that he kind of started as a, an essayist. He wrote for Cahiers du Cinema, which is the famous movie journal in France that, you know, Truffaut and Godard and so many other French New Wave filmmakers got their start in. So he's kind of coming from that pedigree, but at the same time, he's not so much fascinated with like the genre trappings that the other writers at Cahiers du Cinema were so obsessed with. He seems to be a man obsessed with more the behind the scenes and the creative process and the mediums in which people interact with each other within the medium of film. Personal Shopper is about Kristen Stewart texting someone via her cell phone uh, and the person she is texting is a ghost. The Clouds of Sils Maria is this other like kind of labyrinthine like exploration of like fame and fading stardom and artistic integrity and all these other things and it's a it's a play with inside of a film and he loves playing with the canvas and the medium itself and Irma Vep is no different than any of his other work that I've seen up until this point. Irma Vep started as a collaboration with French filmmakers Claire Denis and Adam Egoyen in an attempt to make a modern remake of Louis Fiada's La Vampire, um, which is a like hallmark serialized 1915 silent film about jewel thieves. But what Oliver Saez was so fascinated from that film, among many other things, was that he was fascinated with the idea of this image of actress Misadora who was an actress, a writer, a director in her own right. She actually is quite legendary, and there's a whole featurette about her on the Criterion disc, like a whole documentary about her. The image of her in this black latex cat suit that is so prominent in the section of the film that she is in. And one thing that Oliver himself points out that kind of blew my mind is that this image of this woman, this black latex, like, keeps coming up so much, actually, within the film. Actually, I should get to what the film is about, now that I think about it. Irma Vep is about is a movie within a movie, which is about a legendary French filmmaker who is kind of fallen out of favor and hasn't made a good movie in a while, is the, is the way that people talk about it in the film. But it's about a French filmmaker portrayed by Jean-Pierre Léo, who is an actor and director of the French New Wave. Oliver Isaias is clearly playing with his persona here. I, I think his persona within the film is also his persona in real life. I'm not unfortunately well versed enough to confirm that, but as far as the things that I have read, that seems to be the case. But it's about this French filmmaker in attempt to remake La Vampire with the modern update of having Maggie Chung come from after watching some films. The heroic trio is the one that they're watching within the film, the Johnny Toe movie decides to cast her as the lead in the Misadora role. And when Maggie Chung comes over to France and starts to inhabit this part and put on this latex, she kind of becomes like a fetish object for the crew. I mean, even the suit itself, while this latex suit does pop up in popular culture everywhere, the one that they're, the image that he draws upon is actually Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns. 
from there, it's not so much about the exoticization of Maggie Chung, although that's like a big part of the movie. It's about the creative process and how these people interact with her and how they do fetishize her and also at the same time actually develop legitimate feelings for her. I mean, it's also, you know, the funny parts and the comedy coming from the pretentiousness of, you know, film journalism of the 90s in France and the behind the scenes drama that goes on between cast and crew and all those great Hollywood shuffle-esque, you know. If French filmmakers love one thing, it's making movies about movies, which I love. And it's so intertwined. Like, there have been people who have pointed out that it bears a striking resemblance to Francois Truffaut's Day for Night. But then as Oliver Assayas has pointed out, he was not thinking that when he was making this film because he, to him, Day for Night is about the fantasy of filmmaking that you have as a child. Whereas Rainer Werner Fassbender's Beware the, of a Holy Whore is what he's more drawing upon. And I don't want to, you know, if you're a big fan of that movie, I don't want to spoil who shows up at some point in this movie in relation to Beware of a Holy Whore. But I'm in the weeds on this one, mostly because there's no way I can really summarize what Irma Vep is within like five to ten minutes. So I will just say that it is a wonderful and incredible sounding, incredible looking and funny and just incredibly acted like there's different acting styles on display amongst the cast and the way they bounce off each other and interact is like really exciting. And I just think this is one of those films about film that isn't so much like glorifying the idea that like, yes, movies, they are the end all be all of any medium. But the reason I like it so much is that it kind of gets, I like things about process and the interactions people have when like it's filmmaking is a collaborative process. And that is an idea that keeps coming up as this movie goes along, people have temper tantrums. At one point, the movie even is going to get taken away from Jean-Pierre Leu. It's incredibly dense. But also, it's got a great uh, lot of music from Sonic Youth in it. And uh, that rules. And Maggie Chung is an incredible actress. And she's in a latex cat suit for the whole time. Look, the high brow and the low brow and the middle brow parts of me all enjoyed this movie. I would say this is one of those what I would call like a hard sell, but this is also one of those movies that I think if you take a chance on it, especially if you are into French cinema or you are into, I wouldn't call this deconstructionist cinema, but I would call it's exploring things and, you know, not really ripping them apart, but it's opening them up and taking a look and playing around with them a little bit. I would definitely recommend this movie, if not just because this is an incredibly dense criterion package that they've given us. The essay by critic Eliza Ma is wonderful, pretty much hits on a lot of the thoughts that I talk about here, but much better. And it's a two disc Blu-ray, which means that each disc, the you have the feature film on one disc, along with a new interview with Oliver Asayas. You get a behind the scenes like on the set of Irma Vep featurette. You get an interview with Oliver Asayas from 2003 with critic Charles Tesson. And there they, you know, I haven't even gotten into the whole pedigree of this movie about the fact that this was a movie kind of written for Maggie Chung. And at that point, she had already kind of soft retired from acting. And Oliver Asayas bumping into her at a film festival and giving him her the pitch and her eventually saying yes and they have their own relationship of their own outside of the film and it mirrors what's happening in the film. It's great. I I love it. The context of the film is just as interesting as the film itself. In addition to those things, you have an interview with Maggie Chung and, Natal and Natalie Richard, who is her co-star in the film. You have a whole documentary about uh, Ms. Adora called The Tenth Muse from 2013. You have the episode that is played like, you know, it's a, it was a serial. I think it was a 10 part serial, Le Vampire. There you get the specific episode that Ms. Adora shows up in the latex catsuit. You also get an address from Oliver Isaias about the state of cinema, where for about 45 minutes, he gets into the nitty gritty about the state of cinema and that it's dead or it's always been dying. Who's to say? <laughs> um, you get black and white rushes from the film. You get a whole short film that Oliver Isaias did with Maggie Chung back in 1997 called Man Yuk, I'm pretty sure. And I don't know. It's a great package. 
I'd like to recommend Irmavep to everybody, but as far as picks of the month go, this isn't really a film for everybody. You know, it's kind of hard to tell people to, you know, buy and watch a film about a film within a film, kind of within a film, if you want to get into the weeds about it way too much. But man, the climax of this movie and the ultimate conceit of it just have stuck with me since I watched it like two or three weeks ago. And the idea that film itself is ever-changing and malleable and, you know, when we go through all the drama of collaboration, like sometimes we forget the destination that we're heading to, even if we don't know exactly what that destination is. Sometimes we get lost along the way. This is to say, if you have any interest in all that stuff I just rambled on about for like the past five to ten minutes, please check out Irmavep from Criterion. You will not be disappointed. It is my second and final pick of the month. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Physical Media Isn't Dead. It just smells funny. Please and thank you to Niall James Arena for being my special guest this episode. I'd like to thank Elizabeth Rell for doing the schedule. I'd like to thank Brittany Friesner for letting me do this podcast. I'd like to thank Kino Lorber and Criterion for sending me the movies that I reviewed this month. Um, please check back in here next month. I'll be back at it. Um, and if I get those other movies that were sent to me but didn't show up in time, I will do a follow-up episode about those four movies and I will give them the respect that they deserve. But thanks for sticking around and listening to these. I think physical media is more important than ever. I haven't even gotten into the whole controversy about the leaked information that someone who works for Warner Brothers uh, saying that they're about to exit the physical media game, so a lot of catalog titles might be getting lost to the sands of time or to the collectors who have them, and hopefully we'll just put them up and make them available for those if companies don't want to do it. But anyway, thanks for joining me for another episode of Physical Media Isn't Dead. It just smells funny. I'll see you at the movies. Good night.